Hello and welcome to Legal Tech Arcade with me, Rob McAdam, an independent podcast about tech-driven legal service delivery and the people and products that make it all happen. Okay, so welcome to uh, the latest episode of Legal Tech Arcade. Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined this week by David Howarth and Giles Thompson. David's co-founder and director of Avoca and Giles is head of growth there as well. Guys, welcome to the Legal Tech Arcade podcast. No, thanks for having us, Rob. Very much looking forward to it. Yeah, Yeah, thanks very much, Rob. No, good to have you on. I I don't know whether you've uh, tuned into the first three episodes of the podcast, but um, I've developed this kind of icebreaker question playing on the whole arcade theme. Um, So I tend to ask guests about their favorite video games you know whether whether you play now or whether you're you know you played as a kid i like to know you know what was what are the games that spring to mind what were the games that you loved playing oh yeah um for me it was, it was a real close one but i'm gonna have to go golden eye yeah classic <laughs> nintendo 64 which is i'm sure an answer that you'll you'll get many times yeah but it was closely followed by diddy kong racing which is a slightly nice alternative to mario kart um, which is also great. So yeah, always kind of loved the N64, and I am kind of ashamed to admit that actually during lockdown, although maybe I'm amongst amongst friends here, that that some gaming has reintroduced itself into lockdown life. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. No, I think we uh, we're looking at uh, yeah. There's going to be some serious tech purchases at Christmas in this household, I think. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Charles, what about you? What were you uh, What were you playing now or when you were younger? Well, the first thing that came into my head was was FIFA, uh, but yes. I, I, I I think that's cheating because it's it is obviously very derivative uh, f- uh, from football itself. Um, but that's sort of that's what I play with my brother, and that's how I've um, regressed over lockdown um, for sure. My brother my brother's eighteen and uh, plays on Ultimate Team Online. Um, but I, I'm actually going to go for um, Crash Bandicoot. Nintendo 64 because that's sort of that's got the nostalgia element and yeah I mean there's nothing like that in in real life Um, so yeah that's my answer awesome I was never I was never a massive console gamer I was just like more of you know like a PC gamer so I like whilst uh, FIFA definitely resonates you know and I know this is going to be shocking to a lot of people but Goldeneye I just never Never really got into. Um, it didn't do it for you. No, it wasn't. So yeah, it just didn't do it. Didn't do it for me. But um, I might have to. Uh, I think there's a big kind of trend towards retro gaming now, isn't there? So maybe, uh, maybe I'll have to to dig it out and uh, reassess it uh, as a game. Uh, awesome. Let's get into the let's get into the business end of the podcast then. So uh, I guess a lot of people will be familiar with Avoca and will have heard of you guys. I know uh, Charles that you were presenting recently at Legal Geek, which was great. Um, David, do you want to give us a bit of an overview of Avoca, you know, as a product, as a company? Well, you know, what does it do? What do you, what's your thing? Yeah, of course, Rob. So, um, yeah, so Avoca uh, was founded by my, myself and Elliot, who were, were you know, were old, old friends from uh, vacation scheme uh, days at law firms back in kind of 2016. And, and the mission or the idea really is to bring a fresh approach to contract automation, and, and but actually not just that end-to-end contract automation. Mm-hmm. So, we cover off uh, automation, negotiation, uh, e-signature and analytics. But I guess in particular, we're trying to to really uh, lower the skill level required to get into automation and just take a very fresh approach to what mm. has been a great concept around for a long time, but just bring some fresh ideas and, and, and fresh uh, functionality to the area. Yeah. Uh, also, I mean, what in terms of target uh, target market, your kind of typical clients, is that 
is it more on the law firm side? Is it more in-house? Where does that kind of sit? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. It's probably actually about about 50-50, I would say. I think, um, and we can you know go on to discuss various trends, but I think we're probably split pretty equally between law firms and in-house teams. But I think within that, when you unpackage it a bit more, different bits of the system resonate with, with different sectors. So you see your in-house teams being particularly interested in not only the automation, but the idea of negotiating online, which is, mm. which is I think, a really interesting prospect to them. And I think law firms will, will, will get there as well. But I think the initial interest in law firms probably is more around the idea of more more traditional automation and automating more documents but yeah we, we work with both sects of the market uh, pretty freely yeah uh, but whenever i've worked uh with in-house teams i always find they're a little bit more kind of open a little bit more open-minded a little bit more progressive in, in how they approach things uh, and i can totally see that they would look beyond just the kind of straight up document automation into some of those some of those subsequent areas that i'm sure that we'll uh, we'll touch on in in this podcast um are you able just to explain a little bit as well? I'd be interested to hear from Charles in a second. Just, you know, you're both, I think, former lawyers. What was your journey like into, into Avoca? You know, you, you founded it, um, but you were a lawyer. What, what did that look like? What, was, what were the steps you took? What was the thinking behind it? Uh, and then perhaps we can hear from Charles as well. <clears throat> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll try and keep it brief, but but essentially, I think like a lot of like a lot of um, legal tech founders, although by no means the only the exclusive route in there, it, it's an idea that that was kind of um, it was had and it was very much you know um, saw the things going on in the market, particularly in the US around kind of consumer apps looking to do similar things to, to kind of bring innovation and, and automation mm. really into contracting, but then we didn't really see anything that had necessarily been applied to the kind of work that. You know, both myself and Elliot had had been involved in. You know, I was at um, was at Linklater's. Elliot was at, at Slaughter and May, and and this idea that actually consumer based apps or apps where kind of the user experience and the consumer kind of came first and almost democratizing skills, I guess uh, is a good way of putting it, mm. um, hadn't necessarily been applied too much to to the work that that we were doing day to day. And you know, there's been lots of, of pivots and and uh, you know change of direction slightly along the way but but ultimately was trying to bring efficiency to the work that we were doing uh, in our day-to-day lives and um you know it was a very traditional route of, of slogging it out at the weekends and evenings <laughs> coming up with a business plan working out you know what a business plan even is yeah to start with um not not the easiest job to do when the jobs we're doing during our days and evenings is pretty demanding anyway mm. so you know you'd kind of be finishing in the middle of the morning and at the weekend you'd be trying to put together or learn about what a business deck was and yeah you know from there you get funding and, and kind of things evolve so it was definitely not something where we were massively you know we knew how to code or we had we'd already been through loads of uh, you know business training and things like that it was definitely a, a learn on the job approach which i'm sure resonates with many other people that have been through a similar mm. experience so uh, that's really interesting david i guess you know it must have been in you know it must have been a challenge looking at some of the i guess the incumbent large players in the document automation space some of the legacy systems it must have been quite daunting for you guys to to essentially kind of enter that market and take take them on you know was was that the case or were you kind of quite bullish about uh kind of going after the document automation market yeah it's a it's a really good question i think like a lot of things it was almost a, a bit of everything mixed with a with a bit of blissful naivety in a way because um you know, as I mentioned our, our initial focus really when we were putting together our early business decks was to actually offer documents to almost consumers or small small law almost mm. pre-automated so actually what we what we tried to solve was very much a problem of kind of design make it really user-friendly um, and actually we were tackling probably simpler documents so 
we didn't really have to stop and compare ourselves to all the huge amounts of functionality that, that at the time the legacy tools were offering. And actually, as, as we've grown, we've actually almost uh, evolved and, and, and handled more and more complex documents and added that functionality. So I think it's been nice because, because we started with that and because we then went into real estate and did landlord and tenant documents, for example, we've, we've kind of grown the functionality of the product to match the documents that we were going to automate over yeah. the last you know, handful of years. But it's also allowed us to keep a really kind of client-centric and particularly design-focused approach. So I think actually, in truthful, we were probably blissfully naive as to the <laughs> kind of challenge we were actually kind yeah. of taking on. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's, from my perspective, it's interesting because I guess there might have been players that have been around for longer, but the way they developed their, built their products initially, probably, and it probably had to be this way, were probably a little bit more complex for the end user. Um, you know, this is why you hear about in document automation, people talk about coding documents, which I think is you know, part of the problem that it, it puts a lot of people off. Um, but I guess you coming into the market when you did, were able to take the approach that a lot of vendors are now taking, which is it's all around no code, simple, intuitive, you know, self-service user interfaces. Uh, and that was your, you know, I guess that was kind of part of your key differentiator coming in, taking these big players yeah. on. And I think I've always, you know, said this about people about, you know, people are always asking, you know, why haven't other tools gone for no coding and the legacy tools? I always think that, you know, it's not like people set out to, and, you know, who knows, 20 years from now, there'll be a way of doing things that people go, well, how, why do people ever use, you know, no coding platforms? Mm. You've got to use the technology that's available at the time. And, and, you know, as much as you've got to develop your own functionality, it probably wasn't possible 20, 30 years ago to create a browser-based yeah, tool that, exactly. that you could automate with. Yeah. And 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 actually, we benefited from obviously a lot of hard work, but also just general improvements in technology. Mm, definitely. So, Giles, I'm just uh, keen to. I guess you, you know, you're coming from from a law firm background as well. So we heard kind of David's journey to kind of setting up um, and, and founding and building Avoca. What's your journey look like? How did you go from from lawyer into your kind of head of growth role there now? So yeah, I mean, I'm I've generally always been interested. In technology, I don't come from a sort of technical background. Um, but the, I mean, the reason I first got into law, um, so I, I trained at Herbert Smith Freehills and then became an uh, intellectual property litigator at Kirkland and Dallas. The reason I did that was really to get exposure to um, really smart people who are who are solving interesting problems using cutting edge technology. Mm. Um, and and I definitely achieved that, and I, I definitely enjoyed um, those interactions with people. But what what I found was I think this is relating to sort of the issue that, you know, Avoca was sort of inspired by when when sort of David was uh, and Elliot were looking at to sort of found the company. You know, I, I found that I was doing a lot of um, repetitive work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, essentially uh, becoming uh, someone who emulated an algorithm, really. So, you know, when I was drafting documents or, or, or doing reviews of, uh, you know, documents um, for, for a piece of litigation, I was using control F and then basically learning a series of steps um, and, and checks and, and going through and trying to do those and execute those as consistently as possible. Mm. Um, you know, and actually a lot of the interesting stuff, so interpreting um, the, the technical detail and, and translating that into the simplest possible terms for a time poor judge um, and actually having inter those interesting conversations. Uh, I was doing sort of maybe took maybe twenty percent of my time was dedicated to that, which is what I really loved. Mm. Um, and actually, so I mean, I, I'm I'm a complete legal tech skeptic, actually. Um, <laughs> and, and and when yeah, and when I 
when I was, um, you know, training uh, and, you know, a junior lawyer, I, I saw lots of instances of legal tech where I thought, you know what, this just is never going to take off yeah. because uh, it, this, this looks like it's going to take ages to learn. And also, you know, I, I mean, I saw several rooms where technology was being pitched to people mm. and I could just see the entire room um, switching off as soon as they said, okay, this is going to, you know, you need to dedicate three hours to this. Yeah. And, you know, a degree of, and I, 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 w I wouldn't say this about um, the, the people internally who were trying to promote the change because they were doing, they're doing the best job that they possibly could. But I think a lot of the vendors were quite tone deaf when it came to, the, the sort of hours that potentially the people in the room, you know, the lawyers in the room had spent the night before yeah. um, in, in the office and, yeah. you know, asking someone to dedicate, you know, even two or three hours to, to making a, a change, which is going to save them time in the long run. Mm. Well, when are you going to find that two or three hours as a lawyer? Um, probably at your weekend because you're already working as hard as you possibly can in the week. Um, yeah. So, so my view is always that you know this all this legal tech stuff sounds really cool, but it's probably you know in, in, until you find something which is really easy to implement um, and really quick and user friendly and and potentially doesn't even need to be um, you know trained on it sort of cons almost consumer software. Um, it's just it, it was never going to be uh, a big thing. So yeah. I, I mean I always had that in mind and. Um, you know, when I ultimately decided that I wanted to go look at legal tech, I, I, I looked at some of the, the offerings, you know, not just Avoca, but there's, you know, different areas of legal tech. There are companies who are focusing on that, that ease of use, that intuitiveness. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's ultimately why, why, I, why I joined Avoca because, oh, I, what it boiled down to, Rob, was I wanted to be able to look, you know, the lawyers I was selling it to in the eye and knowing I wasn't, you know, going to screw up their weekend or, or make their, their job harder in the in the short term <laughs> no that's really interesting so I had, a, I had a question actually and um, i've been meaning to talk to to on the podcast about this but sometimes i feel there's a bit of a stigma attached to lawyers in tech or they get a bit of a they get a bit of a hard time i think lawyers who move into technology and usually it's because uh, there's loads always loads of criticism about lawyers that introduce themselves as an ex-lawyer or a recovering lawyer when they're having conversations and it's i get i get the gist of it which is you know that doesn't necessarily qualify you for anything in in in, in technology you know <laughs> so what why mention it i get that but going back to your point a minute ago around the lawyers that have spent hours in the room and just not getting the the empathy from the vendor or the understanding from the vendor. What is your perspective on lawyers in technology? To me, it seems that it's important because empathy is so important in designing product, in selling to clients, in making sure they're successful. And so lawyers can bring that empathy with them because they've been there and they've done it. I mean, what's, what's your perspective on it? I don't, you know, whichever one of you wants to kind of go, go first on that one. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah, I'm mean, happy. I'm, go, I'm, I'll, yeah, go, Giles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, David. Um, I'm happy to go with it. And I, I mean, I think one of the things is you put it in a really sensitive way, Rob. But I mean, I'll be really frank about it. I think a lot of the the lawyers who I speak to, first off, you know, generally they're quite, you know, they're quite senior, uh, really successful at what they do, uh, and they they put in a lot of you know blood, sweat, and tears to get to where they are and to to to, to know what they know. Um, and I think the first thing that they they think when they see, you know, uh, an ex-lawyer trying to flog them legal tech is, 
you know, if you if you knew so much and if you were so great, you would be you would <laughs> still, still be, be a lawyer. lawyer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, maybe maybe there's some truth in that, uh, but it doesn't it doesn't disregard what you're saying. And I think I think it's it's I think it also just makes me think that the my, the most important part of my job um, is listening. And obviously, this podcast, you know, we're talking at at, at, at you today a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I think listening to what their actual problems are, and you know, where the software uh, might might fall down. Um, and and actually, you know, one of the things we've been really lucky to do, and I, I'd love David to pick up on this because he knows far more than me on it, is we've had some really close uh, both law firm and and corporate partners who've helped us uh, to develop the software so that it works really well for their particular needs and yeah. i think that that's a really important aspect as well and yeah and, and and knowing that in truth you're you're not the person who should decide necessarily where your software goes it's the people who use it yeah i think it's for me for me it's 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 about not not playing too much on the fact that you know you are a lawyer you know, for the sake of being a lawyer and and that that's what qualifies you for you know for anything i think it's about Lawyers can bring so much value to vendors, actually, vendors that are selling to the legal market, let's put it that way. And that's, you know, because they can identify, obviously, the, the pain points, the struggles, um, the, you know, the, the key things to think about in, in terms of usability, how to message you know, products in terms of product marketing, how to engage from a client relationship, client management perspective. You know, they, they understand the market, they understand the people they're dealing with. And I think as long as they focus on that and don't overplay their kind of law, I'm a lawyer hand, I think that's the important thing. But I think there's so much value to having more lawyers, uh, or at least more people that understand the market. It doesn't have to be lawyers because, you know, a lot of a lot of the people in law firms aren't, aren't lawyers. They're, they're fulfilling really valuable roles across bids, marketing, BD, uh, finance, you know, and, and they're also key stakeholders. It's just having more of those people uh, bringing their insight and their their experiences to bear within a vendor, I think make make them more you know would be a very important factor for vendors to be more successful. Yeah, I actually completely agree with you, Rob. I mean, I, I was going to say that I I don't think it should matter as much as it as it unfortunately does. But I think it's it's less about the fact that someone can say. I've been a lawyer. I think it's it's understanding the weird intricacies of working in the law. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's trying to explain to some of our developers, for example, why every law firm has their own numbering style. <laughs> to them, it's it's it's, it's, it's 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 honestly madness to them that they actually just cannot understand. And and some of the early conversations was just essentially, you know, screw them. They can they can have the numbering style we give them, and and I think it's almost um, it's just being in that environment you pick up on just all those weird quirky features that you have to include for it to even remotely work in a law firm mm. that if you didn't know about and as i say less about being a lawyer and more about i think being exposed just like any business really being exposed and understand the problem you're trying to solve and i think if you can go on there and you can you know you can point to some feature and you can see people's eyes light up that might almost seem completely redundant to your developers and to anyone else that's not worked there is 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 the reason for it but 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 the countenance to that is you know we have lots of clients you mentioned in-house teams who we don't actually necessarily deal with the lawyers and you know we we um you know carlsberg great great client of ours and we work with them for a long time you know we work with their um with their sales team essentially and my my legal background there is, com is completely useless mm. you know I, i've never had mm. to try and sell um you know carlsberg's um uh, products to to pubs and hotel chains yeah 
and therefore actually I'm useless in that situation, then we have to do a lot more learning. So um, I, I completely agree. It's less about being I'm a lawyer. It just so happens that you've got the experience in this field. But I think people have got to be really conscious of the fact that the very best legal tech products are not just used by lawyers. And at that point, the fact that you're a lawyer makes makes no difference because you'd be more use if you were, you know, an ex-salesperson who's been delivering, you know, produce. You know, produce. Yeah, that's no, an excellent point. That's why, you know, when you hear this designed by lawyers for lawyers, that just misses the mark completely because, as you say, so much of you know, when I think back to when we were when I was at HiQ and when we were selling, so many of the users just aren't lawyers. Yeah. Um, you know, and and that's because business, you know, law firms aren't just a collection of lawyers; they're a collection of uh, you know, there's some very talented people right across cross disciplinary that all need to pull together to deliver these legal matters. So yeah, I think it's just a, yeah, remembering who your who your users are and who the key stakeholders are. Um, so just moving on from that, just before we get into some interesting discussion around the current state of document automation, I just thought I'd check, check in with you guys. What around the kind of impact you think or you've seen the, the pandemic actually have on, on demand for, for document automation tools or, or what effect do you think it's likely to have over the, the coming months, you know, as, we, as we're about to enter this new lockdown? Um, you know, what, what, what are the effects been? Yeah, yeah I think... You know, there's an, there's an optimistic and there's a potentially, you know, pessimistic look at it. I think at the, at the moment, there's a, I, I think we've got a lot, a huge amount of optimism, not just for automation, but for legal tech in general. Mm-hmm. That, you know, perhaps the, the the only good thing to come out of, of, of this this whole time is that what we've done is we've, we've thrust an industry that has been resistant to change for so long and almost given them no option. And, you know, we, we've said you've got to use Zoom, you've got to use whatever, you've got to know what DocuSign is. You can't print everything out because you haven't got an industrial printer at home. Mm. You know, I think we've thrust people into this world where they've had to embrace new technology. And I think, you know, you look at e-signature, what it's what it's done for that market. And for me, obviously, I'm a, I'm a convert. But e-signature, to me, is an absolute no-brainer and should have been adopted by everyone years, years and years ago. ago. Yeah. But, it, but, it, but it's taken this to... to a, to get people happy with it. And it's not because legislation is not there. Legislation has been there for ages. It's just people haven't an excuse to use it. So the, the optimistic angle, I think, is that hopefully what happens when eventually we all go back to the office, you know, whenever that happens, we take that renewed positivity into it and, and we take that new approach to trying things. Mm-hmm. But I think also that probably needs to be harnessed because there is a danger that actually just as quickly as we've forgotten what it's like to be in the office, we could all be back in the office and forgotten what it was like to work at home and not have a printer and just kind of go back to our our old ways yeah that's the danger i mean what about you charles what do you think what do you think we're going to see or what do you think the impact's going to be uh, for, for the document automation and wider legal tech piece for from the pandemic yeah i mean i think i think there's a few i think there's a few ob- ob- obvious signs that we can point to so so for example you know and i think that these is it's all grounded in you know the the, the physical practical realities of, of of you know the pandemic so you know, signing documents, that's become really hard to do because there's a physical element to that. So that's why we've seen, you know, DocuSign and Adobe Sign and tools like that absolutely take off. Um, I think things like, um, you know, AI, um, you know, contract review tools for due diligence, I think there's a physical reason why that's taken off. You know, it's, it's, it's harder to print out a bunch of documents, get them delivered to um, you know your whole team uh, and to go through them um, I mean that's why I think that's why that's taken off it yeah. you know, is that physical element and I think an element of our platform so that you know collaborating uh, and I think this isn't exclusive to 
us it's um, you know it's something that Office 365 um, offer and so do Google Docs you know mm-hmm. adoption of those kind of tools where you can you know comment on documents tag colleagues and and work on them in real time I think the the, the, element, the physical element that that's replaced is you know ha- ha- handwritten um, you know p- paper markups that everybody contributes to and then um, some poor junior lawyer or trainee types up. I think that that's that element, and I think it's it's hardly surprising that we'll see that, and I think that we will see a bit of a, depending on how long this goes on, we'll see a bit of a reversion on those things. Hmm. But we've seen a lot of interest in document automation generally, and document automation and the uptick we've seen in that it doesn't re- that doesn't really relate to a physical process that has been hampered by the pandemic. And so we've been running sort of academy sessions, sort of you know DIY automation walkthrough um, sessions. And the you know the attendance of that at those over Zoom has been fantastic, and I I would attribute that to you know inspired people at, at, at law firms or corporates who are just interested in gaining new skills, and I think that you know I think that is genuinely symptomatic of people being more open minded about technology and also yeah. wanting to give themselves a new skill to transfer. Um, so so I, I, I think that that particular element gives me reason to be really, really positive going forward. Yeah. But yeah, I definitely think we're going to see a bit of a reversion. Yeah, I think from from all accounts, everyone I speak to, you know, various different vendors um, are all, all feeling fairly, fairly buoyant um, you know, in the face of the pandemic. I think um, they've definitely seen a, a maintaining of, of business, if not an uptick in certain areas. I mean, I'd love to be a sales guy at DocuSign right now. Um, but, uh, yeah. but you know, my, my hope, my hope really actually is that number one, the pandemic gets people, gets, gets firms and lawyers, um, to where they should have been. Like you've just said, David, about, you know, things that should have been adopted years ago. So my first hope is that this just gets everyone back up the curve to where they should be. And my hope is that people then seeing the benefits that can bring really embrace this. And we then push on from that. And see a further adoption of you know tools and technology that is just going to really um, you know really empower not not just remote working because as you say we'll all be back in the office but just empower actually a completely different way of working and and I, my hope going to your point David is that we really don't lose this once this this once we go back to the office if we do go back to the office yeah I hope my other hope is that this transform to actually transforms the way people work in working in offices but you know when we do go back to some normality I really hope this. This is just the catalyst for a significant change and, and people don't just go back to normal. Uh, I don't think they will, but time will tell, I guess. And do, do you think, Rob, this is the opportunity almost for, you know, for, for firms to kind of take this as an, you know, almost planning now to be, you know, all these initiatives that we've, we've tried to push and it's been been difficult pre-lockdown or particularly difficult post-lockdown, you know, do you think people should be planning for this to almost be a relaunch of things and saying, when people do get back in, we, we try and harness this momentum and, and use this as an excuse? I, I, I do. I mean, I think it's a, this could be a great opportunity. You know, out of every difficult situation in history, uh, there, there is usually an opportunity to, to grow, to develop, to, to do something new off the back of that, that, that bad period. And I think if we see this as a bad period, one that which we can learn from and transform the way we do things. I think that's that's the important thing here. I think if we don't capitalize, it will be very, very disappointing. And I think that goes to to law firms and businesses as a whole, that I really want them to embrace this. It has been difficult. It has been horrible for a lot of people, but let's embrace what we've learned from this and let's try and come out with something better. And, and I really, really 
really hope that is true of law firms as well. Um, and I, but I think you know you're going to get the usual. I know there. I, I know from anecdotally, there's a lot of tension within law firms around the best approach. You know, there's half half of people saying this is an opportunity to do something different. Half of people saying no, no, no. The only way you can work at a law firm is being in the office with FaceTime. You know, making sure that you're going to head down working. I I really hope the former camp win out on this. Um, and I and I think the it's it's it is a generational thing as well. I know that you know there's bound to be a ton of lawyers that you know really struggling without their PAs printing stuff for them. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, having to struggle with the reality of you know spending some time with their family and uh, you know which they're probably not used to. But I, you know, I really hope this. You know, I you know I'm being honest, but I, I just really hope that we see a we see a real change after this. And I think there's a massive opportunity to, to restructure, rethink how law firms operate, how they're resourced, you know, real estate, you know, office space, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think um, it's exciting. If, 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 it's, if it's done right, this could be quite exciting for a lot of people coming out of this. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. Brilliant. Okay. Um, yeah, that got deep. Yeah, that was was interesting. Um, Okay, back to document automation then. Um, It's it's an interesting one for me when we talk about document automation um, because I know it was almost the kind of starting point for a lot of legal tech teams in law firms was was kind of people that were using things like Contract Express to to generate documents and and code documents. And that was the real starting point for a lot of legal tech teams in law firms. Over the last few years, it's kind of waned. That that interest in document automation has kind of waned a bit. It's not in the light of some of the other tools that are on the market. It's a little bit like, you know, it's not that that sexy or exciting anymore, which I don't think is necessarily true, particularly in the context of what you guys do. But... um, Whatever the situation is, it's so it's still underutilized right across the board. You know, and it is it is useful. The time savings are enormous from from automating the right documents, but it's still not really been embedded thoroughly with any within any organization to the extent it should be. Why do you think it's still underutilized? Like, I mean, do you agree in the first case? But if so, why do you think it is underutilized at the moment? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree. It's, it's underutilized. Like, you know, <laughs> automation is, is where it has been. It's certainly not, not sexy, you know, not compared to your, your AI, your blockchain. You know, the, the technology advancements that really seem to have captured the headlines over the last, you know, three, five years. I think there's this there's tendency for, for all things in life that just because they've been around for a while, they they lose their gloss and, and, and they're not perhaps as, as news exciting as, as other things. But exactly what you said i mean i struggle to think of another piece of technology or functionality in law firms that has such proven enormous gains mm. you know no matter what metric you look at no matter what vendor you talk to most people are saying between 17 80% time saving on on creation of documents and i mean when when lawyers are billing what they're doing and the hours they are that they're they're charging that's 70 80% of an incredibly large number and, you know, you can get into whether that should be passed on, how that all works. But but even so, there's a huge amount of time saving to be had there. And I think there's a, I think, you know, there's a, there's a couple of key reasons. I think, you know, as we as we touched on before, for a long time, the process of automating a document has been quite painful and it has been quite slow. And that, that's, as I say, no, no dig at, at the way that legacy tools have done things because they, they've done things with the technology that's kind of been available. Mm-hmm. But that process of someone marking up a document, coming up with the instructions, sending it to a technical coder who then implements it, that then goes back, you know, it's it's completely out of kilter, I think, with the fast pace 
of, of the practice of law. Yeah. So I think what that's meant is that you end up actually only automating a couple of key documents and then they probably, as you know, they gather dust because the person that did it left and they're not updated. And then before you know it, the present document that's on the system is more up to date than the automated one and it gathers dust. And I think probably what that has meant is a bit of fatigue with the automation process. Yeah. That people maybe aren't that interested in, in taking it off the shelf again. Yeah, I think I think that's right, especially on the maintenance point, which is and maybe it goes to the other point of, of being too ambitious, but I think if you take a document that is actually quite complex or a suite of documents and it's quite complex, someone could bury their head in it, do the markups, get it coded as a template or a template suite, roll it out. It could be successful. But you know, that maintenance of that comes back to the same person. As you say, if they, if they leave, they move teams, someone else has to step in. It's very different delving back into a coded template automated document to a, just a standard precedent document. Any knowledge lawyer could pick up a precedent and kind of make the amends and changes that need to be made. But when they look at the actual coded template, I think that's actually quite daunting. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the, that going back to that kind of point I made earlier around the coding, you know, the very fact that people talk about you need to code, that document needs to be coded or that template needs to be coded, gives you some perspective on like how the complexity is. Um, and I think it is just about making it and like you guys do, move into a model where it is very um, maintainable and people can be actually self-sufficient and it's very intuitive to maintain and make those changes. I think the problem has been, as you say, complex templates and, and perhaps over-ambition actually in, in putting these documents together. Yeah, Rob, I think I'd, I'd just come in there and say, I think as well, it, the, yeah, I think very much the perception is, you know, let, let's do this big document automation project and let's automate um, you know, all of our standard precedents for a particular practice area. And, you know, let's spend two or three months doing that. And then we'll have all of these um, precedents, which would be fantastic and we can use them forever. But it's sometimes that's just not realistic. Mm. Um, you know, it's, you know, we've seen like with, with things like uh, libel repapering and repapering with respect, you know, respect to data protection, you know, none of these precedent doc- documents are very static um and you need yeah you need to be able to access them and and change them you know yourself and and, and quickly and i think the other thing as well is actually where i think we're most appreciated by clients is when we come in where they're where clients are screaming for help and you know for example um for for you know recently there's been a lot of and it's been you know obviously terribly sad but in you know in the corporate world there's been a lot of need for um, documentation and communication with respect to you know employment um, yeah. so you know particularly employment settlement agreements um, and one of the one of the really good examples of how we've helped a client recently is they had they had the need to send out sort of hundreds of employment settlement agreements all at once mm. um, and they, there's no way they could have put together um, you know the bespoke um, employment settlement agreements for every single one of those employees, and then and then sent them out in in the type of time frame that you know was best yeah. um, without our help. So we were able to you know come in, um, you know help help them with the tool, um, and then let them run with it mm. um, and, and do the automation and and, um, and then get that achieved in a, in a really short time frame. So yeah. It's one of these where it doesn't have to be this kind of project that you, you, you just set out, achieve, tick box, done. You know, it's we're hoping to be the sort of tool where 
you know, you, you come up with this, you come up with an issue and then you know where to turn. So, you yeah. know, instead of, let's say, going and outsourcing something, you know, you have another option, you can maybe insource it, but, but automate. Mm, that's a really good point um, as well, uh, you know, around that concept of kind of internal, external or matter specific automation. I think that's the other key factor in adoption, which is if you're just talking about generating a, an, you know, an automated suite of SBA documents or finance documents, um, and it's not necessarily linked to any specific matter or client or imperative, then it's something that you can pick up, put down, come back to. You know, nothing's necessarily it is broken, but not not in the sense from a lawyer's perspective. They're kind of like life goes on. We can do it the old way. I think the the greatest level of adoption in, in of doc automa- automation is definitely, from my experience, has been when it's done with that specific use case in mind. That that usually is something like you've just mentioned, Charles, like an eyeball repapering, or the uh, you know coronavirus business interruption loan scheme. Uh, loan documentation, where there is actually time sensitivity, where there is a need to have something in place to actually win the work in the first place, then you see some some good adoption. Um, but I think the problem is when you're just doing it internally with people coming and going into the team, workload shifting, it, it just seems to come in waves as to whether people look at document automation or not. And I think that's that's one of the bigger issues. Yeah. And I think, you know, just on that, Rob, I think... If, I think we need to kind of rephrase a conversation of automation being a process and it actually being a skill. Mm. You know, it, it's it, a bit like many things, you know, that that if you can give people a skill to be self-sufficient, you know, the whole giving someone, a, you know, the whole fish versus fishing rod analogy, you know, if you can, if people can be uh, upskilled to be able to do something like this themselves, I just think you start to spot the opportunities more and it doesn't have to be as picky choosy as, right, we're going to put resource into this for six months and it better yield results because we've plowed six months of effort into it. And just because it goes for automation, it can be for anything. If if people can treat this as something they, they can learn by osmosis, mm. then actually, as you say, when that client's demanding something gets done and 500 documents need doing overnight, that's the point when it's too late to think about automation and learn how to do it. But if you can actually learn about it on any tool, you know, months in advance, you'll see someone put their hand up and go, well, actually, I, I actually do know how to automate. Yeah. And w- one of the things I've said to people recently in terms of, you know, how junior lawyers ask all the time, how, how can they how can they do do well in firms? And, and I don't know, when I was a junior lawyer, I was always hugely frustrated by the fact that it was very difficult to add, you know, more value than anyone more senior than you because you just simply didn't, didn't, know, didn't know as much. Yeah. And the main yeah. quality and skill yeah. was law. Like, you know, I felt pretty helpless that, yeah, I could read a bit of legislation, but I didn't know the ins and outs of... But, but actually, something about legal tech, I always say to people, it's such an amazing way to really differentiate yourself as someone, I think, in a firm. And obviously, Rob, you know, you'll know you know way more and be able to speak to it more than we will. But if I was a junior on a deal and someone said to me, can you produce 300 documents? And I turned around and said, well, actually, I actually know how to do this automation thing that I might be able to do this in 20 minutes. Hmm. I mean, that'd be absolutely amazing to be able to, to kind of do personally for myself so I wouldn't be up all night but also just like what I could bring to a deal team I think yeah. is such a great opportunity yeah I mean, you used the term earlier which uh, you know I completely agree with is this kind of concept of democratization and yeah. I, I definitely agree that that is one of the biggest barriers to, to adoption and rollout of document automation technology in both law firms and other organizations is this democratization point I think when you look at what's happened with the use of other tools um it's led to the creation of these teams internally 
Um, you know, they're, they're called lots of different things and lots of different law firms, you know, maybe legal technology team, legal innovation team, legal engineering team. Um, you know, associated to that, you've seen the growth of these legal engineering businesses that will say, we'll come in and we'll help automate your document, uh, documents, your processes, et cetera, et cetera. It's led to essentially kind of the creation of a creation of a role, creation of an industry. That's great. But has that created a, an extra step, a bit of a barrier between, you know, the people that need the automated documents, uh, you know, and the um, and, and the, the knowledge piece? Is it, is there too much of a, a process to go through? Is it kind of knowledge lawyer comes up with a document or someone drafts the president, goes to this team to get automated, then comes out for testing, then, you know, then gets in the hands of the end users? Is that too much? Does it need to be more in the hands and the responsibility of of the kind of the end users? Yeah, it, it, it's it's a really difficult one because it's. Um, I think the problem has been perhaps in in certain places, and it's definitely not true for all of them. But you know, automation departments have perhaps seen themselves as specialists on a particular tool rather than necessarily specialists at automation. Mm. But but I think that's also you know complete human nature. If if you if you if you understand a tool, and that tool is actually you already know it well and you could already use it. You can completely understand from a humanistic point of view that learning another tool, even if it's easier to use and it's got other benefits, you know, it, it is extra work. And I think it, it is a problem. And I don't think it's an intentional problem, but I do think it's it's something that, you know, it does at times make it quite difficult sometimes in certain places to actually, as you say, allow that democratization to happen. I think, you know, perhaps some of the reasons that you're looking at, and I don't think we've seen the same with the AI market, for example, and, you know, I don't know a huge amount of it, so I'm not going to speak too much on it. But at the moment, there's no existing AI tool that, that people have learned how to use that when a new one comes in, it's it's changing people's roles and positions. So, I mean, the best way I think to approach something like this is that, again, whether you're an automation team or not, again, I would imagine the best way of doing things would be to know how to use a, a variety of tools. You know, if you're if you're a developer, for example, yes, you might know one tool really well or one one language really well, but if you know a variety of them, you're, you're best placed to help on lots of different different problems. So, but I do think it's something that firms need to kind of be conscious of that there is an inherent decision bias. I think. In, in people evaluating tools when they already know how to use one really well because actually there's a, there's a bit of a personal cost of having to learn a new skill and, and, and sometimes a, a personal cost of, of, as you say, that democratization of it. But mm. I think it's about how do we actually change that so it's, it's the opportunity to own a new skill yeah. and, and champion a new technology rather than actually people thinking of the, the negative connotations mm. of it. I, I think... Um... I'm a big fan of the legal engineering role. Actually, I think it's I yeah. think it genuinely is really valuable. I think people who have got a really firm grasp of a range of different technologies of process um, of the, of what lawyers do are, are really really valuable. I, I just wonder though whether an approach might be uh, a better approach might be to see these teams as kind of centres of excellence that are there to really tackle some of the more complex processes, complex matters using their kind of very uh, you know, sophisticated knowledge of these tools and processes. But also that's their kind of primary, that's one of their roles, but their secondary role is actually as a train, a bit of a hotbed for training. And I would definitely like to see more secondments and placements from right across the business and law firms and other other organizations. So take take lawyers and, and people from other teams, um, not necessarily lawyers, and, and allow them to join and, and experience that kind of legal engineering ecosystem and team 
and train them up and then release them and be the kind of champions and catalysts within within the business. I think there's too much of a divide, I think, between we're the ones that do the tech and the automation and you're the ones that just do the, the lawyering or, or whatever it might be. And we actually need to blur the lines a little bit um, because you don't get, for example, and I know they're not necessarily comparable, but it's not like when you come to say, I need to draw, I need to put a PowerPoint deck together, I better, better send my requirements off to the PowerPoint team. Or you know, send my request. My ex- I need to get an Excel put together, so I'll bring in the ex- the Excel guys to kind of put this together for me. Yeah, I say that probably some people would love that in, the, in a law firm, but um, you know, but you know what I mean. It's um, we need to get to that point where people are just comfortable opening it up and working in it, and and when they've got a sophisticated need, they they've got the experts to go to. And I think that's a really interesting, uh, yeah, parallel. I haven't really thought about it before, but you know, look at the look at the role of a knowledge lawyer, for example. Like, I'd, I'd I'd love to know, you know, what law firms were like before before that role existed and how it, how it's changed things. But you know, you always taught that that you know you would go to a knowledge lawyer with a problem when when you'd exhausted your own research when you'd, you'd, you'd mm, done exactly. the basics. You'd, yes. you'd found the answers that were readily available because they were absolute experts and they would be able to help you solve problems that in reality might not have been solved before. And I think that's a really cool way of looking at it. You know, all these technologies, can it be the case of your 80-20 rule, 80% of the day-to-day automation that should be automated that isn't, can we make that the democratized skill, but then retain the absolute subject matter experts who are going to be able to do the crazy things that no one can even think about? I think that would be a, a perfect blending of the two worlds. Yeah. Um, um, but, but but yeah, sorry, Giles, conscious that you know that you know you've you've worked you've worked in law firms far more far more recently than I have, so I don't know whether this is something that's actually already kind of taking place in firms, and and maybe I'm just a bit out of touch. Yeah, I think I'd just pick up on a couple of things that have just been discussed. I think one of the one of the points I'd mention as well is just just taking a step back to your your previous question as well, which I think is I think is linked. Is um, I think we we need it's important to sort of remember that actually in it, the people who did the work of bringing in document automation tools into firms in the first place, they had a really hard job, and mm-hmm. actually and actually I think that there's an, you know there's an element of course of the bias around using what you already have but i think there's there's also some really good reasons why the they want to stick with what what they're currently using um because the stakes are really really high for a lot of these documents and you know the ability to have something reliable in place and you know if something is working there's there is a heck of a lot of value in that um but i think that yeah i think your 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 second question rob that's where that's where the, the sort of value of having the lawyers uh you know, join those teams and actually share some of the responsibility for for making changes, um, and so that it isn't this you know a poor um, innovation um, lead or, or or something who's who's an island who has the sole you know responsibility for for picking the the tools you know in isolation from what the stakes actually are. Mm. Um, so I think everybody being enfranchised and everybody you know, there's always going to be a risk of making a change and of looking silly because you picked the wrong tool. Um, but I think that everybody, you know, the more people brought into that decision, the better. And I think one of the things I've seen that I think is really cool, and this may this may reveal the fact that, I, you know, my experience is, is more on the junior end, but what, yeah, it, it is these these specific training contracts and, 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 you know, actually also sort of seat options where when, when you're a trainee or, or a junior lawyer, which are specifically, you know, innovation. Um, so you know, at HSF, I know that the 
the uh, you know digital law team there. Um, they're they're taking a trainee every rotation, or maybe even maybe even two. Um, and mm. you know Clifford Chance, they have their Ignite scheme. Um, I, I you know I know Alan and Overy have been doing this kind of thing for a while as well. Yeah. I mean, I could keep listing them and 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 listing every law firm so that no one feels left out. But you get the idea. Mm. Uh, I think that's a really valuable thing. And you know, you know, also I mean, I know Freshfields have lots of um, more senior lawyers who pass through the team. And the more we do of that, the the yeah, the better the decisions that get made will will be. I think. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. You know, that whole concept of firms need to think about how they uh, encourage that behavior and encourage engagement and for it not to be seen as lesser than their contribution from a from a normal lawyer legal perspective as well and it, and it requires buy-in from the the firm right across the board from from junior right up to senior it take, takes a change of culture you know change of uh, objective setting expectation frameworks remuneration re- rewarding you know input etc it takes a real like a whole cultural behavioral change as well uh, but what it does, what it really does, though, going back to a, a point you made right at the start, Charles, when you talk about that present vendors presenting to, to partners, and partners almost looking at them saying, "Well, if you're so good, you, you, you'd be in my shoes." I think what law firms need to, to, to do is make sure there is a career framework for people that are working in this space, and that they are see, is seen as equal to and just as valuable as what lawyers do. Um, because I'm thinking more broadly than just document automation here. I think there's some really good examples of, of firms creating products and doing um, some really special things on the technology side that, let's be honest, without without which work would not be won, revenue would not be generated. And so as well as making sure there's the kind of the the nod to innovation and technology and, and the support for the, at the junior level, it needs to be a commitment and support right across the board at career level to make sure that you know, people are viewed as valuable and uh, are supported and encouraged through the business to reach senior roles. Um, they might not be lawyers; they might be working in technology. But you know, I think looking ahead, that's just going to be super valuable to law firms going forward, and will be a cr- critical piece in their in their whole kind of makeup and uh, business model. Yeah, Rob, I, I wonder whether I mean I think there's also the tendency for for sort of legal tech professionals to also think we're we're different um, and sort of special. When I, and I I wonder yeah. whether I wonder whether this the mindset shift is is linked to the frankly um, insane expectations for for you know on lawyers in terms of their versatility. You know, I I, I when I was you know, in practice, we used to speak to my, my partner Hattie about, um, you know, all the things I did day to day outside of actually the law. Mm. And, you know, there's the, the, the pitching, the, um, the uh, sort of accounts, the um, billing, the, you know, I, I mean, a lot of stuff other than the law, I'm not going to list it all. But, um, you know, you essentially, you essentially have to run, your, run every element of a business as though yeah. it was a startup if, if you're a partner leading a practice. So I think it's, I think it's actually quite a natural reaction to want to be be the source of you know truth on on every single element of what your business does, and to not you know outsource some of those things. So yeah, and I wonder whether it's actually part of a broader shift um, away from that. I mean, you know, business development. I know that you know I'm sure that there are business development professionals who work at law firms who have you know similar similar struggles. 
Yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. I've, I spoke about this recently, actually. I think I was chatting to my wife about it. Um, she's, she's an ex-lawyer, so it, it wasn't just bad chat. It was, uh, you know, it was, just, uh, it was like, it was kind relevant. of just, yeah, it was relevant. But yeah, but this concept of, yeah, you are as a, as a lawyer to, you know, to work your way up to partner, you are almost expected to be a little mini business within yourself. And, and the temptation that is to get involved in everything. You'd be like, I need to be all over this um, you know, marketing. I need to be all over the pitch process. I need to be all over the bids, the finance. Actually, I need to do the work. I need to mentor my team. Um, it's so unique to uh, the legal industry. When you look at other other organizations, it is very much horses for courses. It's like, I'm going to bring in the best person and the expert in this area, this area, this area, and this area. You don't get someone from, you know, from from finance, kind of going, hang on a minute, guys, what the hell, what the hell are you doing over here in product? You know, this is, yeah. you know, this is this is yeah. this is crazy. You know, but you know, that's kind of what you get in in a, in a law firm. And I think embracing that model of actually, let's trust in the fact we bring in quality people in, in a variety of different areas in which they're specialists. Perhaps we might just do better. I don't know. It's it, I think it is an interesting concept. Um, I'm just conscious, guys. I, what I really want to get into, because I, I think that was really interesting. That was a really good chat, actually, about why document automation perhaps hasn't kind of taken off. But it was actually quite a good analysis of, of you know, the, the structure of law firms and, and that whole business model. What I want to get into now, though, is talk a little bit, but a bit more about, I guess, kind of your tool, but but more specifically, the next generation of document automation. So, what you know, what does it look like? We've, I think we're all familiar, and a lot of people listening will be familiar with with the legacy tools. Coding up templates, filling out a form, generating your documents—great, you know, does the job well, does what it says on the tin. What, what do you think's next? What's the next generation of document document automation look like? Do you think? Yeah, I, I, th- I think it, the you know, next generation has to contain a couple of a couple of key elements. I think, um, you know, f- first of all, we've, we've touched on it a few times. It's, it's that ease of use, and 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 that's the, that's absolutely key. I think because it. it revolves around making automation a skill and then once you do that and more people can do it then you stop just automating those 10 percent of precedents you automate 90 percent of precedents and you start automating on deals and you use ad hoc automation and all the things we've already talked about but i think the absolute key thing has to has to be still that people make tools that are as easy as possible to use and actually ultimately people learn how to use them and kind of kind of you know employ them um, but I guess, you know, we, we've touched on that. And I, but I think going forward, automation tools can't just look at automation anymore. Mm. I know that sounds that sounds stupid, but, you know, automation is great for a first draft, but automation should also see you through all the way. And what I mean by that is we should be looking at the actual negotiation of documents, which I think is intrinsically linked. Some people will disagree, but, but to automation, because, you know, if you can automate your document that can then actually be switched out during that automation, I mean, that becomes so much more valuable. So if you can start to flip out your options in your questionnaire mid-negotiation, actually half the time it takes you to do deals is because the clients change their mind, the deal structure's changed. And by that point, there's no good having an automated pressing because you've already done two weeks worth of negotiations on it. So yeah. I think not just focusing on that initial first draft is, I think, a really big one. And I think it, you know, that flows into your engagement point a little bit before. All this effort that people put into automation as, as weird as it sounds, I think you also want to give them a bit more than that first draft. Because if you could tell someone, well, actually, if you if you automate it, it's worth the time. Not only can you do your first draft quicker, but actually your negotiation could be really could really increase as well. And the final bit, the kind of honeypot at the end of all this, is the golden data, which I'm sure we could talk about for days. But the the ability to capture that data via the automation process and giving people a genuine 100% accurate record 
of, of what is kind of going on and you know all these things are things that you know we, we try and do as a tool as well but but i think the future should look like i think those things are vitally important mm. i think that's yeah that's really really spot on and i think um my attitude towards it is it's about it's about keeping it's about keeping data and collaboration and negotiation in a system for longer because i think what you've got with the kind of legacy tools is it's a it's a way of just generating the same old output a first draft word document yes it gets you halfway up the mountain yeah and then you have to kind of go you know go the rest of the way but the problem then is, as you say, you spit out a first draft document with these legacy tools, and then it's emailed around. There are people scribble red light, you know, on it. It gets forgiven to a PA to, to amend different versions in the DMS. Gets sent around. If someone says, "Don't use that document, use this document," or you know, add this rider in. Here's a rider, you know, emailed across. It's just a horrible system for actually taking that document forward, and and you're losing all the insight, you're losing all the data, you, you're losing the efficiency gains of of, of more, of, you know, a better streamlined collaboration that, that that digital tools can offer. And I, I think you're absolutely spot on, which is about keep that in the system for longer. Um, you know, in an ideal world, you might be able to keep it in the system forever, essentially, and never have to kind of spit out a file or you know a series of pages with with lots of legalese on it. Um, but no, I think it's a really interesting concept, as you say, to to not only deal with the the drafting, um, but actually move into then the refinement, into the negotiation, into the signing, into the post execution kind of process of management, etc. I think systematize as much of that process as possible, and I think you're going to see some huge, huge gains. I mean, do you think do you think that that actually increases uptake? Because you know, one of the things I'm you know obviously really interesting as well is that obviously you know we can all see the benefit of, of data kind of retrospectively. But actually, again, if just talking about that kind of increase in, in, in uptake and, and use of the firms, do you think actually rephrasing that conversation, you know, is also helpful that actually we're telling people about automation, but do you think actually one of the better things to help increase use across a firm is actually maybe educating and talking about the other benefits? Or actually, you know, do you think a lawyer in the trenches is going to sit here and go, well, do I really care about the data a year from now? I might not even be here. You know, I think it's a really interesting one. Like the benefits are really interesting, but I think they're also they're also beneficial to different people, aren't they? The data is almost very different person who benefits mm. from that than the person generating the document. Mm. I think the narrative, I think the narrative and the need has shifted slightly over the last few years. I think it, it used to be about how can I get you know I, I heard that there's some great efficiency gains to to drafting a document or creating a document in an automated way. The, the the narrative now actually when when I hear conversations around document automation it's it's it is about the efficiency of generating a document more easily that's a given but it's becoming more and more about um, how could I access how could I access the right knowledge as part of the process how can I collaborate better with my colleagues and peers during the process how can I access what's market data so when i'm drafting it i know what, whether i'm on point or not you know how can i make sure that i'm capturing all this data for later so i can run analysis so i think the the requirements for someone looking at the document automation have broadened over the last few years away from just straight up time efficiency gains of drafting a first draft document and much more into the broader process so i think uh, yeah i think that's that is really relevant and i think it goes back to the you know that links back to one of the reasons i don't think we have seen as much uptake with docker automation tools is because they actually lack a lot a lot of that functionality right now they lack a lot of integration and they lack a lot of that functionality uh, and i think you know like i said from my experience i think with what you guys are doing and the way you've you've put it together and looking at that broader 
expanded view of document automation into you know document lifecycle essentially is you know is the way way to go and will resonate. That, I mean that's just my view, but I think that I think that is the right way to go. Yeah, Rob, I also think um, I think it, you know it's it's potentially a bit of a banal comment, but you know different people want different things mm. out of it. Um, so you know one of the things that I, I, I was asked by um, a finance partner recently was you know. You know, he said, I, tr- I trade on, you know, the types of precedents and deals that I've done previously and, you know, the bespoke drafting and, um, and you know, knowledge I have about negotiating deals. Like, you know, I, I market myself as a, as a commercial deal maker with certain specialisms. Um, and so, for sure, he, he was interested in all of the data. Uh, you know, others might market themselves in a different way. Um, and then, you know, on the point you 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 made just now about um the you know i suppose um you know drafting tips and 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 knowledge element i mean one of the one of the things that i've seen people ask me about um is how we actually get people to read the draft notes because uh, a lot of people just delete them or or ignore them after they've kind of used a precedent once before Um, Mm. and one of the quite cool things that we've been able to do for one of our clients was you know, in the questionnaire, actually, you know, instead of having, you know, dry drafting notes inserted, we've actually embedded videos um, okay. explaining what the meaning of the clause is. Um, so, you know, the, 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 I mean, obviously, it's nice to have it interactive, but there's a real risk um, benefit. And, you know, there can be commercial benefits to, to doing things that way as well. So, mm. yeah, I, I thought I'd just... Yeah. yeah no, I think it's inter- I think it's interesting, and I'd like I, you know, there's a lot of people get very excited about you know talk about smart contracts, and I know that's got that's got a whole different meaning, uh, and I think people get confused. I think when people get excited about smart contract, what they're actually talking about is actually contracting in a different way. It's a diff- it's a completely different thing, um, and I think we need to move to that, and I think we really need to look at what we define. We need to redefine what a what a con- contract is. It isn't. A Microsoft Word file. It isn't a PDF. It isn't a piece of paper with a load of clauses in. We've actually got to look at it's. It's actually you know what it is. And I think there are some there are some interesting companies looking at this. Um, you know, one one of the ones I really liked I looked at fairly recently was Smash Docs. Um, they almost um, you know you still work on a on a document, but it breaks it down into kind of clauses and almost treats those clauses as independent objects with its own with, the, with those clauses with their own audit history, etc. And I think that's that's What's going to be interesting about you know, the future of document automation is generating the contract in, in a much more digital form, breaking it down, and then you know using uh, technology to actually analyze and, and enhance the ability to collaborate, to um, spot errors, to pull in relevant knowledge, to suggest drafting, to kind of bring in that what's market uh, analysis, to link areas of documents together so that you know that if you're amending one thing you should also be looking at another area of the uh, of the contract as well that's that's what's going to offer all the kind of huge efficiency gains and you just can't do that if all you're doing is spitting out a microsoft word document and then working in your normal tools and emailing it around that just doesn't you know that doesn't cut it so that's why i think kind of keeping it in the system keeping contracting contract drafting and negotiation within a system is 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 what's New, but then I do want. I, I mean, I do wonder. The challenge there is going to get is going to be a, a huge adoption piece. You know, it's it's very challenging to even get lawyers to use Office three six five and co authoring, for example. So, 
um, I think there is a doc- there is an an adoption challenge there as well. Yeah, but, but I you know completely agree. Well, and the funny thing is actually all, all that data that people are desperate to use AI tools to extract out of their old contracts. It's it's actually exactly. so easy to collect. It's so easy to collect that data yeah, exactly using automation. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's almost. And I always say to people, no, we don't have any natural language processing. We don't have any AI. It's actually just really boring database data, but it but it works. And, you know, because we know how the documents are automated, you can tell when a particular clause has been amended, for example. Mm. So, you know, you could with absolute accuracy say of 100 contracts, 99 of them contain our standard liability doc- wording. This one contains an amended version. Like, but only because you've been able to use the automated template and you know what clauses are going mm. in there, et cetera. To get that accuracy kind of with, with AI tools at the moment is, you know, virtually imp- impossible really mm. because it's way harder what they're trying to do. Um, and so, yeah, it just it's, it's really interesting. As you say, this is the holy grail of what people want to get. But I don't think the penny's really dropped for people that that every day you do a document using just your standard word process you're giving yourself a headache a year down the line mm. to wonder what was in there. No, it's right. I mean, that's, you know, because you're using AI tools and, and contract an, a, analysis tools essentially to, to extract negotiated negotiated clauses, which you wouldn't have to do if you negotiated the clauses and finalized them within the system. So I do, yep. I do think that's why I think we'll see a transition of some of those AI tools away from some of this clause extraction, clause identification over the coming years as, as, more and more people adopt tools like yours and actually bring it more within a, a, a end-to-end um, digital life cycle. I think they will see a shift then for some of the AI tools to actually focus in other areas um, and offer additional value, new value in the in the document drafting process and not just kind of say, oh yeah, here's, here's the assignment clause or here's the change control clause or here's the consideration amount because we'll have that data in the system straight off the bat because, because we did the document in the system. Rob, do you think do you think that's going to be uh, equally popular um, at, in private practice firms and and in house, or, or you know, do you have a view as to sort of who's who's demanding that? You mean that that kind of additional AI piece and analysis, or the yeah, the- yeah, just because I mean, I, I I do think that people are going to want that sort of app, you know, the ability to have out of the box, uh, you know, DD. Um, you know, available. So you can, you know, you can find out any, you know, a- anything, uh, you know, you can do queries within your documents, you know, really quickly and, and draw out information. I, I mean, I just wondered, you know, what, you know, do you think corporates or, or, or private practice firms will, will, will want that first? Um, you know, I'm just really interested to know what your perception is. Yeah. On the, on the DD point, it's interesting actually, because I think this is where the, and I've, we've discussed this previously on the podcast actually around, um, the, the use of these AI tools on, on contract analysis. And actually, the challenge for them is that not a lot of people report on a kind of basis of what is in the contract. You know, and by that, I mean, not a lot of people say, I want to pay a load of money for you to run analysis to tell me which clauses are in there. What they're actually, what they're doing is they're paying a lot of money for, uh, to identify the risk and identify the exceptions. And so, so, so kind of firstly, I, I do still think the AI tools need to kind of pivot slightly and find ways actually of identifying by reference to exceptions, all the nasty things in those contracts. Because ultimately that's what people, you know, that's what clients pay for. It's um, to, to mitigate risk, uh, not just to know, you know, what, what's in there, contract summaries, et cetera. So I, on that DD point, I still think, um, you know, that's, that's an important direction that we're going to need to move in. I think on the kind of, 
on the contracting point and the the move to actually leveraging more AI tools in the actual lifecycle process itself. I think that's probably going to be driven earliest by the in-house teams. I would say that definitely notable for me that whilst law firms are still looking at document automation tools, uh, in-house teams are looking at contract lifecycle tools that that, that include uh, the document automation piece. Um, but what they're also asking for is more is way more intelligence in the process. So you ask any in-house lawyer, they'll 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 tell you or they'll produce actually a flowchart or an Excel document that will summarize things like approval processes or links through to knowledge and know-how, playbooks, um, etc. And they just say, you know, I sat in so many meetings saying, can you help like can you automate this? And I think if we can get to that point. So uh, that that is going to be the it's it's the holy grail for in-house teams if they can say I've got a system that labels either me or people in my business to automate documents to direct it through an approval workflow system um, to to enable me to feed it to to give me insight and analysis as to um, the the, the doc- documents and contract uh, clauses against the playbook to amend those to even proactively automate automate that amendment as well send it off for the re- re- requisite approvals and for signing etc. Then I think. That you know, that's that's definitely being driven more by the by the in-house teams. I would say. Yeah. I think it, I think it's really interesting because I, I I actually really agree with you. Um, but what, what I think is going to be interesting is actually a lot of that sort of knowledge at, at the moment. You know, not you know not not AI and not automated. Um, you know, in terms of how you should typically mark up a document, or mm. you know, how, you know what 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 is a risk that should matter when you're when you're looking at a, a DD exercise. That's that's still knowledge that you know lawyers have, and yeah. uh, you know private practice lawyers have. So I wonder whether there's going to be a whole work stream there for private practice lawyers to ad- ad- advise on on how in-house teams implement those systems, and, and to potentially you know where risks um, are flagged in a process for that to be escalated and whether mm. they're going to sort of form part of that loop. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, yeah, open question. Well, I think that's, that's again why I think what's interesting about going back to that legal engineering role and the knowledge lawyer or the PSL type role, um, I actually think there's a, there is an in-between. I think um, some, you know, some legal engineers are actually called legal knowledge engineers, but, but essentially they predominantly just work in Contract Express or some of these some of these tools and just engineer the the the, the document into into Contract Express. And then you get the knowledge lawyers that are very precedent focused. I actually think there is a there is a, an interim role. Um, and actually, to give to give credit to to Suskins when sometimes I don't like like they like doing that necessarily. Um, he did flag that, and I think his concept of the legal—I think he called it like the legal, legal knowledge lawyer or the legal knowledge engineer. I can't remember his book. I think he was talking more about actually engineering the knowledge, not necessarily engineering the system, the tool, the technology. It was engineering the knowledge, and I think that's—I um, think you're right that actually, as we move to this more automated ecosystem where we're not just automating a span around a clause or a field in a document and they're actually going to have to really get into the nitty-gritty of risk and advice um, and insight we're going to need people that really understand that in a deep way to engineer that knowledge for these systems i think it's a lot more straightforward to do that for something like a straightforward automated document but as we move beyond document automation into into this kind of future space of of, of uh, intelligent insight um, and automation that that's going to become way more important um, yeah i think also yeah so i was yeah i was just going to say on that i think the um i think it just goes back to sort of the the, the broader point around 
that you know you can make the tech really simple but all of these things um the the actual sort of legal interpretation and you know for example when you automate a document the the mechanics of figuring out what a contract's doing or you know what what, what a, a particular risk means mm. that 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 still requires um you know, some serious experience and knowledge. Yeah, but it requires tagging. I said this uh, on the conversation I had with Hayley Altman, actually, on due diligence, which is um, like like you train a system, like an AI system, say this is a X clause and this is a Y clause and this is a Z clause, etc. I think you, like on due diligence, you need to be able to tag um, if you did a due diligence exercise and you flag something in a DD report that's come from something that you spotted in a document in the data room, you should be making that association. You should be tagging that um, because then you can actually derive more insights. And next time around you do DD, if there's a similar document, the system is like, oh, actually, this could be a really big risk. And then you're getting to that, that exceptions, high risk reporting in, in due diligence. But that, I guess the same goes in, I guess the same goes in, in contracts. It's not just tagging clauses to say this is a, this is this clause. It's actually tagging them to say this is a bad clause. This is a medium clause. This is a, this is okay. Or this would be okay if X, Y, and Z. Um, and again, that's all about structuring, all about building that framework of knowledge up around it um, that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to do that. I think one, one of the problems as well is that, you know, in order to solve the entire process, like any ones that, you know, you just mentioned Rob or Giles, you need to put together lots of bits of technology and lots of different processes. And I think one of the issues is that to date, because legal tech is not, a, not an overly mature market in general, you have lots of tools that are trying to trying to really nail their part of the world. Mm. So, you know, take the DD process you just mentioned. You know, um, uh, Avoca can do the, the documentation part of the process, for example, and we could spit out the documents. But in order to use us on a DD exercise, you'd need to go and get a, a data extraction tool to do the first bit. And I think one of the things that we as legal tech products have got to get really good at and, and, and do a lot more of is that we've got to understand that for, for law firms or in-house tools, we're only ever one part of the puzzle. I think it's it's super arrogant to think that any of us can solve people's entire, you know, working problem. Mm. And I think actually for any of these problems, we I think as much as it's on the on the law firms and the you know, the in-house team to try and make those connections. I think as as tech products, we can all do a lot more with working a lot closer with people who we can really see are kind of either side of our sweet spot. Yeah. Because I think that the best thing and why a lot of this will really start to take off is when we can speak to firms collectively and say, well, actually, you know, we, we know this AI tool really well and, and they can do this bit, you can plug it into this bit and here's a ready-made solution you mm. can use rather than getting putting that extra burden, I think, on on the firms to try and kind of brick those together maybe. Mm. I mean, some of the other areas that I'd love to see, you know, in the process is, is going back to that concept of tracking the data at kind of clause and document level and, and kind of building that history and profile of documents and then leveraging that as a pool, I think is really interesting because you get into a situation where you'd be able to draft and negotiate documents and you'd be able to filter the knowledge you get given. You might say, right, I, I'm, I need to see all clauses of this type in this industry um, when acting for the buyer or acting for the seller. You could even get it down to uh, documents that you negotiated with particular law firms and say, I want to see you know, this document, this sector, negotiated previously by you know by a and o for example and actually feed that knowledge in and and real real granular insight by learning from documents you've negotiated previously i'd love to see i'd love to see that you know other things that i you know i think are really important as well is around interesting ways of approaching that negotiation so i've always thought again 
you know, you do this tit for tat negotiation on documents where everyone knows they're trying to work towards a reasonable position. So rather rather than go through all that hassle, introducing things like point systems where you know you can actually put some weighting behind how important certain issues are to you, um, and try and kind of reach that more reasonable position faster. Things like uh, other things like automated markups. I saw DocuSign bought bought Black Boiler, which I think is a really interesting company that does the kind of automated redlining of of uh, documents as well. I think I think all that's really interesting and it all it all comes back to learning from data and capturing data and that's only possible if you're doing it within a system. Um, and I guess so I, uh, coming, coming full circle, that's why I think it's just so important to to move document automation beyond just generating a Word document and move it into actually you're systematizing the, the document creation, execution and management process. Yeah, uh, I, can, I couldn't agree more. And I think the best way we can all do that is, is just show people the benefits of that. So, you know, show people that what, you, what your days could look like a year from now mm. and what could your process look like six months from now. And as you say, that holy grail of smarter negotiation, I think, is where all this kind of comes down to. And it's, you know, definitely a thing that, you know, we, we're trying to work really mm. hard on. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether you guys have watched it on Netflix. I've been watching The uh, the Queen's Gambit. Highly recommend if you haven't seen it. Okay. It's a great, it's about... No, no, I'll add that to the list. Yeah, it's about like a, a chess, like a, a, well, it's a chess, awesome chess champion in in the 60s it's not a true story it's a drama it's, it's awesome but long story short she um she she runs uh scenarios in her head chess scenarios in her head she kind of predicts the moves the different the different steps that the opponent's going to take it so she can determine what what best action to take herself so she she almost kind of games it out runs these scenarios and i just wonder whether again you know we might move to that that situation the more data we can gather around contracting contracting processes the more we'll actually be able to run you know almost run a gaming a gaming situation a scenario pla- a scenario projecting situation to say okay let's put these factors in What's this? How's this likely to play out for us on this contract negotiation? Um, I just think you know. Again, only possible if you've got the data about what's happened previously, and in, in what in certain areas can you do that going forward? Um, yeah, I mean, I always, you know, I always think there could be, uh, you know, we think is we have all this data, which just it's just I think essentially collecting until we can kind of interpret it. But you know, I always think on the start of a questionnaire, you could have two sliding scales. Like, are you weighted towards mm. speed in terms of how quickly do you want to get something done, or are you weighted towards you know how much of a pain you want to be, and what are the best possible terms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and and you could imagine that someone, a client, calls you and says, "I've got forty-eight hours to get this thing done." Well, I could, you know, move my ticker all the way towards speed, mm. and I plug in the fact that I'm dealing with this type of client in this jurisdiction. And you know, this isn't this isn't kind of you know forecasting a hundred years into the future. I think people don't realise that the, as you say, the data is almost there. But imagine that you know you could start a deal with what your client's negotiating position was, how quick you wanted mm. to get something done, all those factors. And it would tell you, based on your last 100 deals, this answer set is most likely to get something done, yeah. we think, in X amount of days, exactly. based on all the factors you've got. And, and the problem is, though, we'll, we'll never get to that world if we're not... I think it'd be very difficult, and it's not going to be impossible, but I think it'd be very difficult mm. to get to that world by just relying on the data extraction from... Yeah. from Exactly. Word documents. I think exactly. we have to capture it at source. Exactly. No, I, I agree. The other area, the other area I was thinking about yesterday evening actually was around intelligent template creation. So um, you know, obviously a lot of people have to kind of build a template now. But if you had a negotiated document, you said actually this would be really useful as a as an automated document. Actually, be able to just feed it in and intelligently, you know, identifying how the document needs to work from a from an automated perspective would be. Um, would be ideal. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's actually funny. Funny, so it's just on that, funny you mentioned that, but we're actually working with a with a kind of AI tool at the moment on on, on exactly that. Oh, nice. You know? 
can basically, because they can identify clauses, if we can basically pipe through an uploaded document, they can pipe back what this clause is. But not only that, what do those square brackets in that present document mean? And then we can basically store what questions you should ask for that. Mm. And before you know it, you'll be able to, obviously it won't be foolproof and it's experimental at the moment, but essentially you'll be able to, you know, automate your automation of the document, which yeah. is which is pretty cool. Mm. Damn it, I should have thought that earlier. So, uh, um, cool, cool, cool in relative terms. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've just, I just, this has been a fascinating discussion, and I've really, really enjoyed this, this, this debate and sharing ideas with you both. Um, I thought we'd just maybe just finish uh, briefly. Um, you know, just for everyone's benefit. What, what's, what's next for Avoca? So I know it's hard to predict. You know, in the current times, but uh, yeah, what do you think the next twelve months beyond look look like for you guys? From you know, company perspective, product, customers. You know, what, what can people expect? Yeah, I think, you know, for us, we are, you know, over the next 12 months, a couple of key things. So I guess one products product mentioned, you know, we're going to be working a lot with a couple of the key AI I tools out there to make sure that we can be plugged into a couple of key processes. So, you know, things like can we automate the full uh, DD process and can we automate our own automation? So getting really close and really understanding how we can work with tools like that is a, is a kind of a key differentiator for us. Um, and then and then second of all, just increasing what we see is this promotion of the skill of automation. So, you know, we've launched things like the Avoca Academy. We're going to continue to do things. We're going to continue to try and basically, you know, try and let everyone see the benefits of, of automation. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's really trying to make sure that automation can be used by by everyone and, and, and push that kind of negotiation side as well. So, yeah, you're just going to see more from us uh, working really hard to make sure it's as easy as possible for everyone to kind of gather the benefits, essentially. Brilliant. Well, yeah, I think I... Oh, sorry, sorry Rob. No, go ahead. Um, yeah, I was just going to add to that. I think that there's, a, there's a few other things as well. I mean, what one very specific thing um, is we, we, we've we've uh, got a um, you know collaboration uh, locked in with the Loan Market Association, Loan Market Association, mm-hmm. and Alan and Overy, um, and that the public launch for that is um, in the new year. Um, so that's one to look out for, particularly for the banking and um, finance lawyers. And yeah, the the team continues to expand. Um, you know, off the back of you know re- recent business and things as well. Awesome. Well, listen, David Giles, that's that's been a fantastic discussion. I really appreciate you guys coming on the the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it um, as well. Um, I know there was tons of insight there, tons of good ideas, and you know, analysis of of what's broken and how to fix it. And you know, time will tell whether we're, whether some of our some of our proposals and ideas are are going to kind of pie in the sky or actually going to come to fruition. So. Uh, yeah, no, it'll be it'll be interesting to watch. Um, th- 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 thanks for having us, Rob. And you know, I can only hope that maybe everyone else finds document automation as interesting <laughs> as, uh, as perhaps we do. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a pleasure chatting through with you, and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. That's it for this week's episode of the Legal Tech Arcade Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, then please go ahead and subscribe. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.